Thank you, Emily, for that. So many talented people that God has blessed this church with. It's been a busy trying to keep track of everything with VBS going on and a youth missions trip and mat leaves and people taking off on different holidays. And the next section that we are going to be looking at here today in John chapter 3 is a very busy section too. Uh, when I read through the second half of John chapter 3, you, you almost don't know where to begin. Uh, there are so many thoughts and so many ideas as John is just trying to portray everything that Jesus is and says and represents. But as I looked at John chapter 3 and began to spend some time in that second half of John 3, I started to notice that there was actually a lot of repetition that John was saying some of the same things, using the same phrases and the same pictures that he has already used earlier in the gospel in just the first couple of chapters. And as all good teachers know, repetition is a very good teaching method. When we live biblically, we read the Bible over and over and over again. We never get to the point where we read the Bible through once and we're like, done. Finish that, check it off, I never have to read it again. Biblical lives go over the Bible again and again. When we learn to swing a golf club, we do it by swinging that golf club again and again and again and again. That's how we learn to kick a soccer ball. That's how we learn to play the piano like we heard Emily play. I'm sure she's played that song many times. That wasn't the first time she sat down and played that. Uh, that she not only played that song, but plays scales again and again. That's how we learn. Uh, growing up in a bit more of a liturgical church when I was a kid, by saying the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday, that repetition of it again and again instilled those foundational beliefs into my subconscious mind. Repetition is how we learn. The kids this week during VBS who memorized Bible verses, they learned those Bible verses by going over them again and again. They, the songs they learned this week, they learned by singing them over and over and over again. That's how we memorize, how we instill values, how we develop good habits. I tell my wife, and I tell my children every single day, even when I don't feel it, I love you. I say it again and again and again because by repeating it, it makes it real. It's how we develop habits. Now John three seventeen to 36 is a repetition of what John has said before. We have been working our way through the Gospel of John, and we are now in the second half of John chapter 3, and in many ways, it is a time to pause and to repeat. Just listen. From these verses, I will say the phrases from these verses here that have already been said. In this section, John says... That Jesus is God's one and only Son. That God's light came into the world. That people love darkness more than the light. 
He says that John the Baptist is not the Messiah, but only the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. He says that Jesus must become greater and greater, and John must become less and less. He says Jesus has come from above and is greater than everyone else. He says that Jesus testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few people believe him. Jesus is sent by God. Jesus speaks God's words. God gives Jesus the Spirit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything in his Son's hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Those 12 phrases in today's section have all already been said. That's 12 things in a mere 14 or so verses. That's almost one a verse. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Just in case you haven't caught this in the first three and a half chapters, let me repeat. Let me say it again. Who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus was not a figure who just came into time and space without any kind of historical background. And so as we've been learning so far through this Gospel of John, in order to understand Jesus, in order to understand who he is and what he did and what he said, it is important that we understand the background from which Jesus came to us from. And that background is the Old Testament. And so what John's been doing, and what he does with a number of these images too, is he keeps pointing us back to Old Testament pictures and concepts and ideas to put Jesus into his biblical and historical context so that we know who Jesus is. It's to protect us from just making Jesus into our own image. Making Jesus a 21st century Canadian. Making Jesus an 18th century European, or making Jesus some kind of Near Eastern guru. But we want to put Jesus into his Old Testament context so that we understand who he was in the historical day that he lived and the kinds of things that he claimed and said to do. And that's what we've been doing. We've been repeating this over and over so that we can understand who Jesus is. But one of the other things that repetition does for us is it allows us to look at the same ideas from a different angle. Like taking a diamond and looking at a diamond over and over and over again. One of the things repetition can do is it can cause us to tilt the diamond a little bit so that we can repeat, look at it again, but look at it from a different perspective. And so that's what I want to do this morning. This morning, we're not going to repeat all of the pictures and how they relate to the Old Testament. We've been doing that. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a very important contemporary issue and try to assess this contemporary issue in light of what John is saying in his gospel. Now, I want to warn you first before we do this that Usually, this is not a very healthy way to read the Bible. To take just contemporary issues and then to just sort of ram them into the Bible and try to apply the Bible to them. 
That's how we make the mistake of making the Bible say all kinds of crazy things that it's not intending to say. So the only reason we can do what we're going to do this morning is because we've done the background. We've spent the last couple of months doing the background to understand the biblical and historical context in which Jesus is in. That always has to come first. We always have to first understand what is a text, what is a Bible story, what are the images saying in their biblical context as they relate to the Old Testament, as they relate to the historical context, before we jump to any kind of contemporary application. And so we got to keep that in mind this morning, that the reason that we are doing this and are able to do this is because we already have built our background on the texts involved. So with that in mind, we're going to move into a serious conversation. It's a conversation that's going to cause us to think missionary-minded. One of the things that we have to remind ourselves, particularly when we grow up in the same historical context that we were born into, and we're still in that context, is that we need to be missionaries. If you leave and go to another country, that becomes more automatic. You know that everybody around you is different and has a different culture, and you have to constantly think about, how do I relate the gospel to my culture? But when we grow up in a certain culture, it's easy to forget that. And what we end up doing is we end up wanting the gospel to constantly accommodate to me. How can the gospel message accommodate to who I am? Rather than recognizing that we are all missionaries and we are all on a journey to continually say, how do we, even here today in Canada, relate the gospel to our culture? How do we adapt the gospel without compromising the essential truths of who Jesus is to the people that we are trying to reach? And the target group I want to talk about this morning is the group of millennials. It's no secret that most Canadian churches, when they look around the church, the group that is most absent from church today is the millennial generation. Usually they are the ones that are pinpointed as between 18 and 32 years of age. Now the problem with this age group being absent from church is not unique to this generation. Uh, this has been a issue that every generation has had to face. How do we pass on the faith to the next generation? But many of the statistics show that it is particularly on the decline with millennials of this generation. Depending on which surveys you read, which surveys you trust, it puts it anywhere between 50 to 80% of millennials that have gone to church have dropped out of church. 50 to 80% of those that once went to church who are now between the ages of 18 to 32, have left the church. And we're not talking left the church like they've left Bethany and they've gone somewhere else. We're talking they've left the church. And left the faith, many of them, with it. 
Now, there are many ministries trying to address this problem. Focus on the Family is one of them, and they are currently endorsing a new book called Abandoned Faith. Why Millennials Are Walking Away and How You Can Lead Them Home. I put a copy of this in the church library. I would encourage everybody. I know there's ones you have to put yourself on a waiting list. I would encourage everybody that has a chance to read this book. Not just millennials. This book is for everybody to analyze and begin to think through how are we being church to the next generation. The second chapter of this book lists seven reasons why millennials, from their interviews with millennials and people that have left the church, seven reasons why they've left the church. And then the book goes and talks about some of the things to sort of look at and focus and do about it. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at these seven reasons and then relate it to some of the things that John has been saying in the first three chapters of John particularly the things that he is repeating here in this section in the second half of chapter 3 because I think that we find some of the issues right in there and help us to think through some of these problems. So these seven statements that I'm going to make this morning come directly from the book. They're not from me. They're not things I made up. They come directly out of the book from surveys of, of hundreds and hundreds of millennials of why they've left the church. The first one is many millennials fail to see the connection between faith and culture. Outside of the church, they have no idea how their faith should play out in their careers, their personal interests, or their future lives. They see a disconnect between their faith, the faith that they were raised in, the faith that they were taught, and how to relate it to real life. Now, in John chapter 3, and throughout John, we continually hear the idea that God sent his son Jesus to save the world through Jesus. That God's light came into the world. John 3, 17, God sent Jesus to save the world through Jesus. The biblical understanding and the biblical theology of the Reformation was a much richer biblical theology than what came out of a lot of American revivalism in the 1800s, the tent meetings and a number of those things. Unfortunately, much of today's church, especially in the evangelical world, is merely an adaptation of sort of the revivalist tent meeting uh, type of theology. Uh, from this revivalistic teaching came an overemphasis on turning Jesus' message to be all about how to get people into heaven when they die. And then they started to come up also with elaborate end time scenarios of how to escape the fire and brimstone that was about to come. Raised in this environment myself, not the more Lutheran or liturgical church that I went to in my uh, childhood, but during my, my youth years, my teenage years, I went to uh, a Plymouth Brethren Church. Very conservative, dispensational, very much out of this kind of environment. Raised in that environment myself, I often wondered what the point of my dad painting houses was. And what was the point of my mom being an x-ray technician? 
And in the arrogance of my youth, I would often tell them that. And what's the point? Unless you're evangelizing and saving people for heaven when they die, it all seems sort of pointless. Maybe my dad could secretly paint Bible verses into people's walls so that when they came into their new house, it just kind of got into their head, and then they got saved. Maybe my mom could figure out how that, she could do that with x-ray. There certainly was no point to creating, no point to enjoying God's creation, no point to good literature. It took me until 22 years old before I bought my first novel, and even then I felt guilty uh, buying a novel because that was a waste of time to read good literature, to read a novel. Gardening? I mean, unless you, you arrange your flowers in a certain way that says Jesus saves... What's the point of gardening? It's all going to blow up in the end anyway. So this is kind of the mentality that I came up with. And the problem with this is that it makes 95% of your faith completely irrelevant to real life. And so millennials and others who have been raised in this kind of environment see to, fail to see a connection between their faith and culture and real life. There's no connection. It's simply about praying some prayer to get into heaven when you die. There's no other connection. Outside of the church, they have no idea how their faith should relate to their careers, how their faith should relate to the movies they watch, the arts that they are involved in, their interests, their family life. Now contrast this kind of revivalistic type of teaching, which is all just about getting saved to get into heaven, with more Reformation thinking. Using Martin Luther as their spokesperson, the reformers said things like this. When a Christian father goes ahead and washes diapers, and I love the fact that Luther says when a Christian father does this, already in the 1500s. When a Christian father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other tasks for his child, God, with all of his angels and creatures, is smiling not because the father is simply washing diapers, but because in doing so in Christian faith, it is to the glory of God. Martin Luther also said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant an apple tree today. This is where the whole idea of the Protestant work ethic came out of. The Protestant's understanding of the priesthood of all believers that my vocation as a pastor standing here before you today is no more holy or dignified than my dad's vocation as a painter or my mom's as an x-ray technician. And that by doing these things well and doing these things to the honor and the building of society is something that glorifies God. Beautifying our communities, building houses, being an honest banker are all jobs that contribute to the building of God's kingdom. We even noticed this. My wife said this to me last night. She was um, in one of the discussion groups with the kids for VBS last week. And one of the questions that were asked the kids was, how can you use some of your abilities and talents to glorify God? And the kids made responses like, well, I could, I could paint, and then I could sell the painting and give the money to the poor. 
And there were a number of those kinds of things. I could do this and sell it and give the money to the poor. And those are good things. But my wife said to me last night, what about just painting for the glory of God? How many know the story of Eric Little, the, the one who ran the, in the Olympics way back uh, uh, when? And he said, when I run, I run for the glory of God. Not because I've got a streamer running out of my back that says Jesus saves, but I simply run for the glory of God. I can simply paint because there's something intrinsic about being artistic when I'm made in the image of an artistic God that brings glory to God. There's something about enjoying good music and good art and culture. God sent his son Jesus to save the world. Through Jesus. Sometimes we forget this and we limit the world to people, individuals. And not only do we limit the world to people and individuals, we do even worse. We then limit the people to a, a certain part of the person. And we say that God's only interested in saving souls. And by that, we mean the Greek idea of a ghost living inside. So we don't even uphold the full physical resurrection of the person. It's that all God's concerned about is saving this ghost that lives inside of you for heaven when we die. That is so unbiblical. And the reformers themselves spoke very strongly against that. That God is interested in saving the world, which means you as a whole person physically, which means his creation, that not only is there going to be a resurrection, there's going to be a restoration of the very earth and the very galaxies and the very heavens. We see this in Paul's theology in Romans chapter 8, where all of creation is groaning and waiting for God's redemption. That is biblical theology, and that is what makes sense of education and careers and gardening and art. That for millennials and for all of us, we need to understand that the faith is not just something we do on Sunday morning. Faith is not just some kind of inner, personal, spiritual thing that's disconnected from the rest of the li our life, but faith is about all of life and doing life well brings glory to God. That's the message of Scripture. Regent College here in Vancouver has the Reframe series. We have done that a few times here at the church, and it's in our library. The Reframe series does a, does a wonderful job of flushing this out, of what it means to live for the glory of God in our retirement, in our schooling, in our careers, in our marriages. What does that look like? We need to teach that. We need to show a connection. The biblical message the church must teach and model if it wants millennials and others to connect with their faith is to show them that it is relevant to real life in the fact that God came to redeem and save the world. Now, points two and three in the book I'm going to put together. Many millennials also acknowledge that they have been raised to be legalistic rather than to live a biblical life. Parents and churches have put a greater emphasis on rewarding good behavior than on being obedient to God's word. Interesting contrast. 
Uh, the second one is many millennials have seen much hypocrisy and compromise in the church. They see the church more interested in money and membership than in teaching the Bible. And this has caused many of them to walk away from the church. It's odd how religion, or a religion, centered on Jesus Christ, continually becomes legalistic. And it's the nature of religion. Every generation has to fight it. That's why every generation has reformers that come along. Because the nature of religion is to go legalistic. It's ironic how a religion based on Jesus is this way because if there was anybody who was against legalism and hypocrisy more than anyone else, it was Jesus. Jesus would be a thorn in the side of the church in every generation if he showed up to it. It were the two things that he spoke against and despised the most. We see even in the early stages before the church was even Birth here in John chapter 3, verse 25, a debate broke out between John's disciples and the disciples of some other guys. What about, verse 25 says of chapter 3, about ceremonial washing. Uh, a debate broke out. Should we wash our hands this way, or should we wash our hands this way, or what does the Old Testament mean like this? And so already, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, and we see later on, Jesus' disciples, and then even when the church gets birth, these kinds of things continue to come up. Issue after issue, and then camps are formed around issues. Coups are organized. People put their cause above the great evil of church schism and division. We do not see that as a heresy as much as we should. Schism and division. A great heresy. The ceremony washing issue comes up at the wedding. And if we remember the story of the wedding where Jesus turned water into wine, we see how much Jesus in his symbolic nature showed that he was coming to bring about a new order. The water at the wedding was used for ceremonial hand washing. And what did Jesus do? He took the very water and turned it into wine. It wasn't just to give his guests wine. It was to symbolize the fact that a new order had come into place. And it was an order away from legalism. An order away from ceremonies. An order away from rituals and traditions and customs towards an order that knows how to worship in spirit and in truth and love. You want to know why so many millennials reject the church but have such favorable opinions about the LGBTQ community? It's, it has nothing to do with sex. That's, that's completely missing it if you think it's just because of sex. It's because that community portrays love, acceptance, tolerance, diversity, the willingness to be an individual and yet be accepted if you're different from everybody else around you. And so they've got that to, to look at. 
And for many millennials, they then look at the church that their parents and grandparents are a part of, and they've seen fighting and splitting and rebellion and leaving over how the water should be administrated in baptism or how the crackers should be eaten during communion, fighting over every other issue in the church. And you tell me, which community would you rather be a part of? That's what they see. That's what's been modeled to them. Jesus would leave as well that kind of environment. It's a strong statement, but it's true, and we have to be able to listen to it. I long for the day when Christians can worship together and practice and celebrate the theologically rich diversity of many traditions, of many approaches to communion, of many approaches to baptism and music and preaching and culture, rather than our increasingly sectarian, narrow views that split and then split and then split and then split. People want to see Jesus. People want to see Jesus high and lifted up, as John the Baptist did. People don't want to see denominations. People don't want to see ceremonies that divide us and make us arrogant and argumentative because we think we know the truth better than everybody else. They want to see Jesus high and lifted up. Millennials aren't looking for, church, for, for perfect people. They're looking for honest people. You don't know how many times I've sat with millennials in my office who have said to me, I have never in my life heard my parents ever say they were wrong. I've heard that so many times, and I'm like, your parents are Christians? I mean, the whole message of Christianity is, I am wrong. The whole message of Christianity is, confess your sins to one another. And I hear time and time again, millennials who have Christian parents or grandparents who say to me, I've never, ever heard them admit that they were wrong. Just for once, I'd like to hear them admit, I'm wrong. I actually am a sinner. I actually do need grace. I am wrong. At times. The fourth and fifth statements I'll put together too. Many millennials have never actually been taught about the life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The focus has been more about following celebrity pastors and helping them launch their satellite campuses than on being trained in how to read and study the Bible for themselves. And the fifth one is many millennials, though raised in the church, are biblically illiterate. Those two kind of go together as well. See, we live in a celebrity culture. Celebrity is savior in our culture. And it's affected the church just as much as it's affected the rest of society. And we flock to celebrities. We flock to celebrities in the church, and often we live vicariously through them. Many in the church live their faith through their pastor. If their pastor's on a high, they're on a high. If their pastor's low, they're low. Whatever their pastor believes, they believe. I've told many people that have come to me after my sermon and they say, you know, I went home and I read my Bible and I looked at this and I don't agree with you on such and such a point. And I say, great. Because I am not trying to get you to agree with me. I'm trying to get you to think through your faith to make it your own. I think a rich congregation is one that's theologically diverse, not one that's a bunch of clones of the pastor. So go home, think it through for yourself, wrestle with it. If you come down to different conclusions, that's completely fine. That's, that's, I've done my job then. My job isn't to make you disciples of me, it's to make you disciples of Jesus. So 
what happens, though, is people don't do that, and they take certain Bible teachers or certain TV personalities or certain radio preachers or, or pastors or, or musicians or whatever, and they prop them up, and they live their faith through them. They hear what somebody else says, or they read something in the Bible, and the first thing they say is, oh, I wonder what, what, what John Piper has to say about that. I'm like, well, why don't you think it through for yourself first, before running off to finding out and, and, and always taking his position on things. I mean, he's not infallible. He's got some good ideas. He's not infallible. Don't just run to your guru. And so we live in this celebrity culture which tends to prop people up, prop pastors up. This is not necessarily the pastor's fault. Sometimes it can be. Some pastors can burn people out and some pastors can, can use people to simply build their kingdom. But most pastors aren't like this. But people prop them up to be saviors. Celebrity saviors. And they put them ahead of commitment to Christ. They put them ahead of the slow, deeper work of examining their own faith. Which takes work. Which takes a more work than a quick one-minute Google to find out what so-and-so says about it. It takes your own work to, to read and to study and to connect with Jesus on your own. John the Baptist, like all good preachers, knew the importance of not and trying to steer people away from celebrity. When some of John's, John the Baptist's disciples complained that some people were leaving John the Baptist's camp and following Jesus, this is what we read. Chapter 3, verse 25. The one you identified as the Messiah is also baptizing people, and everyone's going over to him. They started complaining. John replied, you yourself know how I told you plainly. I'm not the Messiah. This is true of every pastor. Every one of us. I'm not the Messiah. This is true of parents to say this to their own kids. I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear the vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at Jesus' success. He must become greater and greater, and we must become less and less. You can't live your pastor's faith. You can't live John the Baptist's faith. You must go to the one they are pointing to, and that is Jesus. It's why people can go to church for decades and listen to thousands upon thousands of sermons and be essentially functionally biblically illiterate. Because unless you take it in yourself, unless you take ownership of your faith, it doesn't matter how many thousands of sermons you will listen to, it'll have very little impact on your life. Most of you forget what I've said by 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. Unless you take it in and make it your own, that has very little impact. You need to read your Bible for yourself. Make your faith your own. Millennials need to heed the danger of being fixated with church celebrities. And we need to model that for millennials. If they see their parents 
Or grandparents always talking about, well, this preacher is really good, but I don't really like that person. And, well, the reason that church is successful is because, you know, they've got that pastor. And, I mean, our church isn't very successful. We probably need a new pastor. If we could get a new pastor, then we'd be successful because it all depends on the pastor. Well, then we're modeling to them that it's all about the pastor. We're modeling to them celebrity culture. That it all comes down to the person that's leading rather than the family committed together. Church growth is about healthy churches living diversely in love with one another and love with God. The sixth point that this book brings up is that many millennials have doubts and objections about the Bible and Christianity, but find they cannot raise them in church, or if they do, Don't find church people able to give them good answers. This is probably the one I relate to the most because this this was the one that almost caused me to leave the church. Anybody that knows me knows I ask a lot of questions. And many times churches aren't a safe place to ask questions. People can jump down your throat before you um, even finish your question. On the fourth Sunday of every month, I preach to a millennial crowd at Faith Baptist Church in Vancouver at their 2.30 service. I go there once a month, and last month, I did a question and answer time with them. And this millennial crowd of 18 to 32-year-olds, these are the kinds of questions they're asking. They're asking questions about transgender issues. They're asking questions about homosexuality. They're asking questions about sex and singleness. They're asking questions about marital unfaithfulness. They're asking questions about agnostic professors and bosses. These are the questions they're asking, and they're wondering how faith relates to it. And yet there are still in the church many that don't even want to hear these topics addressed or preached. One person, a young doctor, asked me how he should respond to his patients who come to him wanting hormone treatment, gender hormone treatment, when they are suicidal if they don't get it. What do you say to someone like that? I have a guy that comes to me regularly. He wants to transition to become female, um, and, and when he doesn't get those kind of treatments, he's suicidal. Is the church a safe place to ask questions like that and not get knee-jerk pat answers to allow differences of opinion? Two Christian doctors may actually deal with that situation very differently. Do we allow for that in the church? Help people think through a grounded biblical response of what it means to be Jesus' disciples? Those are answers that, I, those are questions I can't answer uh, by, by giving a one, two sentence answer like it's just some simple solution. Those are complex problems. If millennials are going to become biblically literate, they need to see the Bible handled well in the church by church people. It's one of the reasons we did our 40 day New Testament Bible reading to begin practice reading the Bible well, reading big, thinking big, seeing themes, seeing the structure of Scripture, to model healthy habits of Bible reading. There's no lazy way to become well-informed scripturally. There's no lazy way to do it. 
It involves time-consuming, balanced, widely informed Bible study. And with all the good Bible schools around us, I mean, we are in a, a location here in the lower mainland with many good Bible schools around us. I feel it should be mandated that every retired person should have to go to Bible school at least part-time. Could you imagine what that would do to our churches? If every single retired senior was biblically training themselves in their retirement years. In fact, I'm, I'm reading this book right now. It's a study of Norman Rockwell's paintings. And it, I'm surprised the, the author of this book also points out too how many of Norman Rockwell's paintings show seniors studying. And this author was, was talking about how this was a, a theme for Norman Rockwell and an encouragement that many of his paintings show seniors at the book studying, looking at globes with magnifying glasses. And, and he was very much encouraging our latter years are the le- years where we have the time and the resources to really become educated, wise individuals. I'm not overemphasizing the point to say this would revolutionize the church and would be richly attractive to millennials. Millennials have no problem with with seniors. Especially seniors that they see that are wise, that are patient, that show that they are educating themselves, that they're learning, that show love. The the, the seniors that that don't attract millennials are ones they see as narrow-minded and bigoted and argumentative and people that just don't seem to keep growing. So it has nothing to do with age. It has to do with what you're doing with it. Jesus comes from heaven and testifies about what he has seen and heard, but few believe what he tells them. But anyone who accepts Jesus' testimony can affirm that God is true. John 3, 32 to 33 says, we need churches filled with people Filled with people from old age to young age who can testify to the truth of God in science and in philosophy and in psychology and in language and in anthropology and in archaeology and in economics and on and on and on we go. So that people can hear and see that God is true, not just in one little narrow religious sphere, God is true Everywhere, all truth belongs to God. And they need to see, we all need to see people testifying to God's truth in all spheres of life. And if God is really true, and if God is so vast, we'll never fully even understand him in our lifetime. And so people need to see that right into our old, old age, we're still learning, we're still growing, we're willing to change our mind, we're willing to expand, because that's how big God is. If people don't see that, they see a small God. And who wants to follow a small God? They need to know that God is true in all areas of life. And we are the ones called to testify to that truth with grace and mercy and wisdom. And lastly, many millennials who claim to be Christians never had a true conversion to begin with. The Pat Sunday School prayers that churches and revivals have people recite don't guarantee salvation. Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life, but we need to ask ourselves, what does that mean? 
What does it mean to believe? Eternal life should never re be reduced to, to simply the afterlife. Eternal life means life now to the fullest. Yes, it will extend into the afterlife, but it begins now to the fullest, and it is against all the anti-life, anti-God obstacles that come in our way. But it's important to realize that this life is found when we bind ourselves to Christ. The pray this magic prayer to get you saved into heaven when you die and then mix in a once you do that, once saved, always saved is probably one of the biggest obstacles and heresies to the modern gospel. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. Pray this prayer, once you pray the prayer, once saved, always saved, boom, you're good. It's almost a direct affront to the clear call of everything Jesus stood for. Matthew Bates's new book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Rethinking Faith, Works, and the Gospel of Jesus the King, is just a, a, a timely message for the church today. It's time we stop coddling our millennials with their baby prayers and their baby ideas about God and tell them that it's about full commitment to Jesus Christ. That a four-year-old prayer or a 14-year-old prayer that doesn't have any testimony that follows it is useless. It's about walking with Jesus. It's about allegiance to Jesus. You can't rest your salvation on a prayer with no testimony. We need to remind all the church of that. And so there's a lot of information here. I'd encourage you to read the book. But if I were to summarize all this up, I would summarize it with these five statements. That Christ came to save the world. And therefore, we need to show how following Jesus intersects with every aspect of our life. Secondly, following Christ is about living in authentic relationships of brokenness, confession, and forgiveness while embracing Jesus-centered diversity rather than rules and regulations and factions and fighting. That's what the church needs to model. Third, we must resist our celebrity culture that makes idols out of pastors and Bible teachers and instead center our lives on Jesus and his scripture. And fourth, a healthy faith in Christ always lives in tension with questions and doubt. And the church should be a safe place to ask and to struggle with our questions and doubt without condemnation. And finally, we need to stop asking people to believe in Jesus. And instead, we need to ask them to become followers of Jesus. I want to pray. I want to pray for our millennial generation. Pray for us as a church. And then as the praise team comes up, after I pray, we're just going to dismiss you. Service has gone a little bit longer today with some of the extra things that we've had. But the worship team will play as you leave on your way out, but I want to encourage you to think about how do I, as we began this sermon, how do I begin to live as a missionary? So that it's not all about everything adapting to me, 
I'm already a believer. But how do I begin to grow in Christ in such a way that I can adapt for the lost? To bring truth to them. To speak their language, to speak into their culture the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, one of the last things you said to us was to go into all the world and to make disciples of all people. Uh, the message, Lord, that we see in Acts is the message of the Holy Spirit coming to Jerusalem and then the church being birthed and spreading outwards. Lord Jesus, we understand and we recognize that healthy Christian living is always a movement outwards. Outwards from the doors of the church. Outwards beyond our own personal preferences. Outwards beyond just everything being on the inside in our inner life. It's always towards others. It's always towards the lost. It's always towards the culture. And Lord, whenever we reverse that and move everything inwards, it dries up, it dies, it becomes stale like the Dead Sea. We become unattractive. Lord Jesus, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our children's children, for the sake of the people coming into our country from many different countries, from many different backgrounds, for the sake of those that are struggling with issues of gender, with those that are struggling with sexual orientation, with those that are struggling with issues of abuse, with those that are struggling with doubts. For the sake of the lost, Lord Jesus, create us and make us to be people who are wise and loving and growing in Jesus Christ and displaying the truth of God in absolutely every area of life so that we are an attractive light for the gospel, so that when people come to us and ask us for the hope that we have within us, we can proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. May we be light, may we be salt in the world you send us out into. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.